Some of these people will be killed. That is a truth. These young Americans, some of them will not come home. The president owes it to them to own his decision to send them into harm's way. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Vikram Singh here in the studio. He's the vice president for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress. Prior to joining the center in 2014, Singh served at the State Department as the deputy special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, and at the Pentagon as the deputy assistant secretary of defense for South and Southeast Asia. Uh, joining us from New York is Whitney Castle, an FP columnist and foreign policy analyst. She spent four years with the secretary of defense, where she focused on special operations, counterterrorism, and Pakistan. Stan. And calling in from Austin is Paul Miller. Paul is the Associate Director of the Clement Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. He previously served as Director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff for Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments? You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So the subject of today is Afghanistan. Um, which now at 16 years is the longest war in U.S. history. And we're seeing now proposals for an increase of troops for 4,000. General Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is in Afghanistan this week. Vikram, can you talk about that? What what do you expect to see out of Dunford's visit? Anything? Or or is it just sort of fact-finding on the ground? Well, I don't think it's just fact-finding. I mean, in a sort of ironic sense, we have perhaps the best qualified set of people you can imagine working on Afghanistan, uh, even in the Trump administration. General Nicholson, who's in the field, uh, has long experience with Afghanistan. Folks at the White House have long experience. In fact, given that it's a 16-year war, everybody has long experience with Afghanistan, and that certainly includes uh, General Dunford. So I think what it's going to be is he's going to be sort of sig- doing a signals check with General Nicholson. They're probably going to talk about what they expect this increase in troops to be able to accomplish. I think their objectives seem to be fairly minimal, that is to sort of stave off further deterioration of what has become a a slowly but increasingly bad situation for the Afghan government. Um, and I think that they are uh, probably not going to talk about it. They're probably lamenting the fact that they don't really have a strategy in which they're working and they don't really have uh, their civilian counterparts uh, there working through this with them. It's uh, it's sort of what can we do with some troops uh, feels like a Band-Aid to me. And, uh, and, I'm, uh, and I'm deeply concerned that we're, we're going to just sort of be in this, this uh, kind of endless cycle of stalemate. I mean, that's sort of fright. I mean, what can we do with some troops? That's a good question. I mean, what can you do with 4,000 additional troops? Well, and, uh, and, and Paul and Whitney can both speak to this as well. I mean, what you can do with 4,000 additional troops is quite a bit more than you can do without 4,000 additional troops. It means you can help more Afghan units in more places. It means you can provide more overwatch. It means you can presumably, depending on the mix of forces you're sending in and the mix of enabling capabilities they'll bring with them, like intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance and air support, um, you can apply greater pressure in selected areas to the Taliban or to to ISIS or al-Qaeda-affiliated groups that are operating in the theater. So what it is is you can do more of the same. The same, even with a lot more, is not going to be a solution to Afghanistan civil war. 
Actually, Paul, you wrote recently in an FP column, sort of a, or included a rhetorical question, what has the United States not tried over the past 16 years that it could possibly try today? I mean, is that just a rhetorical question or is there something to that that one could look at other options? I think there is something to that. Um, I think during the Bush administration, if I can be, if I can uh, give a kind of a gross generalization, we, we got plenty of time. The Bush administration was willing to give Afghanistan all the time it needed, but not enough resources, not enough troops, especially in the early years, uh, and only a moderate amount of reconstruction assistance. And the Obama administration fixed the resourcing problem, but didn't give Afghanistan enough time. So what we haven't tried is giving it the resources and the time uh, at the same time, right? That's what we haven't tried. And that's what I'd love to see the Trump administration do. Um, I agree with Vikram. I think that we've got a, a talented team of people who are in positions of authority in, in the White House and then the agencies and departments. So it's possible that they could actually uh, kind of come up with the right sausage, uh, that the sausage machine might might kind of grind out the right answer. Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical that 4,000 is enough, but it's better than nothing. And uh, benign neglect from the White House might actually be what Afghanistan needs right now, if benign neglect means that, that the, the folks on the ground are going to get the time they need to finish the job. Well, Whitney, as someone who was there at a critical period, do you have, would enough time and resources do something different today? I think it might. I think it might. But I think there are a couple other things that would have to change. I mean, I agree that the the right combination of time and resources has not been struck in the past. But I, I think there are some strategic issues that need to be worked out before any amount of troops or time will really be sufficient to stabilize the situation. I think those have to do with Pakistan and, and with the Afghan government and what, what they may or may not be capable of. On the Pakistan side, there has to be a way. And I know, Vikram in particular, this will sound familiar uh, when when we were in the Pentagon, a familiar uh, refrain. But in, until you can get Pakistan to back off, backing um, insurgents that are that are crossing the border and, and destabilizing Afghanistan, I just don't know if it's possible to stabilize the situation uh, from the Afghan side. And with regard to the Afghan government, you know, the issues of corruption and poor management, I'm n- I don't know that there's any amount of U.S. troops that can shift the balance without some real improvement uh, on those two fronts. Well, Defense Secretary Mattis is supposed to provide the president with a new strategy for Afghanistan. What do you expect to see from that? Any new ideas or sort of more of the same that's been produced, you know, on a pretty recurring basis since 2001? I know what I'd like to see, and and those have to do with the two factors that I that I just mentioned, and and then you know probably some additional resources and and time, as Paul said. I'm not sure how likely that is. The signals coming out of the White House right now with regard to Pakistan, in particular, I think are worrisome. Um, there's a there's a lot of signals that there will be a, a very adversarial stance towards Pakistan, which could make sense given the right combination of carrots and sticks, but a purely uh, adversarial, just kind of, we don't care what you think and we're going to plow ahead without consulting you or taking your strategic objectives into consideration, I think is is something that will backfire and really make it hard to to get where we need to go on the Afghan side of the border. So I hope that those signals are wrong or that someone, that kind of cooler heads will prevail with regard to Pakistan. The rest of the strategy, I can't imagine that it will differ that dramatically from what we've seen in the past, but I'd be interested in what Paul and Vikram think. Well, in the in the midst of all this, we saw the announcement of the closing down of the Office of Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, which on one hand was in the works for a while, but this sort of the sudden ending of it took a lot of people by surprise. Is that a sign of something or was that? 
It, it, it's a sign of uh, – to me, it, it's it, – all many things have been a sign of mismanagement. So not so much benign neglect as just neglect. So I, I am uh, actually quite supportive of the idea that the, the office of the special representative may have sort of seen its day and it's time to transition to something. But there's no assistant secretary. There's no deputy assistant secretary. There is no ambassador in the country that's a representative of the Trump administration. No one in the politically confirmed position that are supposed to be in charge of the diplomatic, economic, political piece of what is, after all, a war in which American troops are committed. Um, to me, it's a, it's a striking dereliction. These should have been top priority positions. They should have been filled urgently. If they were going to shut down an office like SRAP, they should have already had their, uh, their nominee, uh, you know, in, in place if possible, I mean, as a priority. And the Hill would have been very receptive Capitol Hill members would have been very receptive to, hey, there's a priority position for an ambassador in Afghanistan. Anywhere where our troops are deployed, we want to have a team in place. Those people could literally be in place already, uh, and they haven't even been picked, uh, let alone nominated or put through the process. Um, to me, this is very similar to the way we saw the troop announcement. The president is the commander in chief. Sort of micromanaging is not good, but neither is just saying, you know, I'm going to leave it to the generals, whatever they want on troops. I'll leave it to the diplomats, whatever they want on diplomacy. Uh, maybe if I have any of them, you know, it, it is a it, it, it's shockingly cavalier when you're asking young Americans to go fight alongside Afghans. Some of these people will be killed. That is a truth. These young Americans, some of them will not come home. The president owes it to them to make, to own his decision to send them into harm's way and to provide them with a strategy and with the sort of comprehensive approach to this war that is merited. And if it's going to be a long-term commitment, the American people deserve to know what it is we're in for. Let's not forget not only the risk of life and limb to these young men and women that are going out there to fight for us, but it's a huge cost. 4,000 troops is going to be over $8 billion at a time when we're talking about massive cuts to the entire infrastructure of American power all around the world. Um, so these are very heavy questions, and the administration is, in my view, doing basically nothing to address them. And since the administration has essentially devolved the power down to the Pentagon, how, you know, what can the Pentagon do in the absence of a political strategy? How do they decide troop levels? What What do you think Mattis's thinking is on this? So, I mean, I think to Paul's equation of time and resources, neither time nor resources do you any good absent a strategy. There cannot be a strategy that is just a military strategy. And while we now have a very experienced cadre of people all across the military, they're not going to solve this alone. They are going to be putting – they're going to be basically establishing uh, a holding pattern, a, a holding pattern that comes at great cost and that seems to be somewhat detached from what our overall purpose is. I think it's useful to step back, and I'd be interested in hearing from both Paul and Whitney, uh, on what are our interests in this part of the world? What do we need now in 2017 that is different than what we were seeking in 2003? In the Obama administration, it was really focused on countering terrorism 
and uh, ensuring that Afghanistan could not become a safe haven for terrorists in the future. Uh, to my mind, that was a little narrow because I don't think that counterterrorism can actually be detached from uh, what's going on in the in the affected society where the terrorists are finding safe haven. And I think that you need to have a, a more comprehensive approach to helping countries in these situations. But we're sort of at a moment where we need some first principles and we need to formulate a strategy. And the strategy that's been promised is one that is coming out of the Department of Defense, which by definition um, may be necessary, but will be insufficient for addressing this challenge. Well, that's a great question. So, Paul, in terms of the time and resources that would be needed, what would be the goal of that strategy today or what do you think should be the goal? Yeah. Well, let me let me start by saying I agree we absolutely need a strategy. I mean, just as time and resources won't win the war without a strategy, the, the reverse is true. A strategy won't win the war without time and resources. So you need you need all of it. Um, and I also want to agree that I think maybe the stakes of this war have, have been underemphasized and maybe ignored uh, by the national security establishment, by the press, by the White House, because everyone's so focused on Syria and on ISIS, and they seem to believe that that is the most important thing on the national security agenda. I really, I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, ISIS has managed to make enemies out of Iran, the United States, and Russia, which is a pretty impressive diplomatic uh, feat of ineptitude. Uh, Al-Qaeda is actually still out there. Al-Qaeda is uh, smarter about its own long-term survival, and it's metastasized and created franchises all over the world. I do worry quite a bit about the continuing danger that Al-Qaeda poses, the original Al-Qaeda. So in terms of what is the goal of our strategy, I think our goal of our strategy is to defeat Al-Qaeda. It's not changed. It's the same thing it's been in uh, in 16 years. Now, for my money, let me agree again with Vikram, I think that you can't aim narrowly and only at defeating al-Qaeda without addressing some broader issues that enable al-Qaeda to take root and to have safe haven in South Asia. And that means we we have to aim at the defeat of the Taliban. Unfortunately, that's something that uh, neither the Obama administration uh, the Obama administration was unwilling to say that, that we were going to aim at the defeat of the Taliban. Even the Bush administration was a little hesitant about that uh, because they thought that sounded maybe a little too ambitious. But I, I think you can't defeat the one without the other. In 16 years, we've consistently told the Taliban that if they will denounce al-Qaeda, that we don't have a fight with them and that we'll, you know, we, won't, we won't aim at them anymore. And in 16 years, the Taliban have never done so. I, th I think the Taliban and al-Qaeda are inextricable, and to defeat the one, we have to defeat the other. And so that means a, a full-up counterinsurgency strategy, like we were almost implementing in about 2010, 2011. Uh, but uh, again, without the sufficient time. So I think we need a full counterinsurgency strategy with the reconstruction, with the state building, yes, with the nation building. Uh, and that's what we'll, it will really take to defeat the Taliban, defeat al-Qaeda, and foster long-term stability in South Asia. Well, Whitney, that sort of takes us back almost to your time period in Afghanistan. Do you agree with that? I do, but but I am also realistic in, I think, believing this administration is highly unlikely to pursue a fully resourced counterinsurgency strategy. And I think we sort of have to work with what we are going to be given um, by this this set of actors. And my concern is that if if those who have been working on Afghanistan, the previous administration and, and others who are sort of commenting um, like ourselves, push hard for a fully resourced, quote unquote, nation building strategy, it, it will just fall on deaf ears. Um, I agree with both Paul and Vikram with regard to the long term goals, even the short term goals. I think at least 
um, weakening the Taliban significantly is required in order to um, to defeat al Qaeda or to sort of neutralize the threat. Um, I also agree they they pose more of a threat, um, almost certainly, to the homeland and to U.S. interests and security than um, than ISIS does as as we know it right now. Um, so so I do think um, that all of those goals are are really important, but. I think we have to consider what we're likely to get from this administration and then try to prioritize and, and try to really push that political strategy um, that's missing right now to try to, to optimize the resources that are going to be poured into this. And, and I don't think that they're they're going to reach that level uh, of a fully resourced Well, point. we've talked a lot about our resources. What about the Afghan government? I mean, I think there's probably widespread agreement that in Ashraf Ghani, we have in some ways a better partner than Karzai. But in terms of if you look across um, everything from the capabilities of the Afghan Air Force, the military, the corruption issues, what is the viability or the ability of that government in the even shorter, medium term to operate? I mean, if the ultimate goal is withdrawal of U.S. troops, is it a sustainable government? Vikram, do you have thoughts on that? So, I mean, I think a great tragedy of the last several years is that the Afghan political system ended up producing this uh, this stalemate that led to this dysfunctional, you know, unity government with Dr. Abdullah and Ashraf Ghani sharing executive roles in a very uncomfortable and often very sort of uh, destructive way. They're just not – they're not able to be effective in part because they're involved in this intramural fight that, uh, that, that distracts from being able to be uh, an effective government. I don't know how effective they would have been uh, if it had been a clear victory for one or the other that led to a single government. I expect they would have been and even now are probably better than what we had under the Karzai administration. I mean I think there's a, there's a risk. What, you know, Whitney pointed to the politics. Like I, I just don't see a, a, there being a reality of replaying 2009 to 2010. And many of us who lived through that period really do lament that we lost General McChrystal at the time and in the manner that that, that, that happened because I think it shook the foundations of what was being attempted. But even then – we had the Karzai administration to deal with. And at the end of the day, I mean, insurgencies get defeated by the by the host nation, not by outside forces. Host nations with external support are much more likely to withstand an insurgency. Many times this is a matter of decades, not months or years. And so the you know, the outside support that is that is almost guaranteed to continue in this theater is going to be Pakistani outside support to forces they see friendly and then potentially international support to Afghanistan, which means that this is this is an insurgency that has the ingredients for being very, very long lasting. Um, and so I, you know, I think this is the, the inherent conundrum. And it's why there's never been an easy answer. Uh, many of us, I was not someone who thought we should do an 18-month timeline on the surge when we that happened in the Obama administration. But the countervailing point to that was if you don't show that there is a time limit, the local government is going to assume it can it can you know d- rely on you forever and may not make some of the hard decisions it needs to make in order to get its house in order and get its act together. I think that was kind of the countervailing argument. Uh, and I think those are in some ways both valid points. The The bottom line is, you know, absent sort of invasion and occupation by outside forces, uh, it's going to be up to the Afghans to win this war. And as long as they're 
willing to put the effort in, I think we have enough at stake in terms of our interests that it's worth supporting them. And it's important to say Afghan forces are fighting and dying, uh, you know, really in what, both in large numbers and with great dedication. Um, and Afghans in large numbers want to have a stable future for themselves. And I think there has to be a way in which we can invest adequately and be in a sustainable posture. But we have to think about what's politically sustainable in the United States, and we have to think about what the Afghan government can and cannot uh, realistically do. So, I mean, this is this is a tough problem, which might be one of the reasons the president wants to devolve it to, to everybody else. The intractable problem. Wendy, I want to take us for a second to War Machine, the, the Netflix movie starring Brad Pitt. Um, you wrote a very, because <laughs> unfortunately, I mean, this, this might be the way that a lot of Americans are even sort of engaged in the Afghanistan issue is through the Netflix movie. Um, you wrote a really scathing review of it, which I, so I haven't seen it yet, but I, I've been sort of reading all the reviews and, and plan to watch it with my own eyes. But what I've noticed, and maybe this is an overgeneralization and you can correct me, is it seems like those who um, served in the military in Afghanistan, as opposed to on the civilian side, are almost, or at least maybe not complimentary, but less critical. I think I saw in some of those reviews that they felt like even if it got the portrait of McChrystal wrong, it got the satire right. But I, can you just talk to us a little bit about why you had such strong feelings about it? Yeah, sure. Um, and for what it's worth, I did not write the headline, which I think really <laughs> added to the to the scathingness. So uh, you can credit Ben Parker with that. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of kind of confusion about the movie actually, and and this has come out in. in large extent since I wrote the review. But um, I do agree that a lot of people in uniform really liked it, or at least that's what I've been hearing. Um, and I think people, those those people really have taken it as a satire. And that makes sense to me. I understand, particularly if you've served in a conflict that you feel like the, the government, the, the United States population is not taking seriously, and that you've sort of gone round and round and round with the same strategy. And, and as Vikram said, not felt like your, your lives and sacrifices have been really... Um, taken seriously by the people in power, then then that kind of satirical take, and, and we obviously saw it with Vietnam and MASH and all the other satires that that, um, that folks have made about war, you know, it, it's a really cathartic and sort of important voice to be able to criticize um, the people in power in those environments. The part that was really frustrating to me was I, I don't actually think that the movie is satire per se. I mean, it was based on Michael Hastings' sort of book-length version of his article in Rolling Stone that sort of took down McChrystal, and, and that was a piece of nonfiction. And the problem with it to me was that it actually wasn't satire. It was sort of, it was an attempt to rewrite the war with an extremely cynical and sort of dismissive lens that really wrote off counterinsurgency as a crazy pipe dream that could never achieve anything, that was always unrealistic, that was always sort of cynical and and impossible. And, and that, I think, is really inaccurate. Um, there were all kinds of problems with that strategy. Um, as Vikram said, I mean, I think losing McChrystal as a result of that same article was was really um, a, a blow. You know, the Karzai administration was a problem. All the other problems that, that we've talked about um, were, were real. But I think writing it off as kind of a, a silly pipe dream, it takes away from from what people were actually trying to do. And it takes away from the important pieces that I think we need to hold on to as we consider what our strategies should be, you know, seven or eight years Vikram on. Vikram Paul, have either of you seen it? I have not yet. So I am holding out judgment. 
It's also just terrible. That's <laughs> my personal opinion. <laughs> uh, I have not seen it, so I can't comment on the show. Um, but I'll comment uh, anyway on something related, uh, which is the narrative of uh, inevitability that, you know, the counterinsurgency was inevitably doomed to fail. That's just kind of the latest iteration of this sort of narrative that's taken hold in Afghanistan since the very beginning. It was weeks into the bombing campaign that Foreign Affairs ran that you know, infamous article on Afghanistan Graveyard of Empires, uh, and everybody was afraid that the Afghans were going to rise up with their legendary xenophobia and overthrow the foreign invaders and, and all that. And it, that sort of abuse of history has never been useful. It's never been a helpful guide to policymaking in Afghanistan, and it's cast a shadow that things are doomed to fail because of what's happened in history. That's rooted in bad history and at least a bad policymaking. You know, as a scholar looking at this and as a practitioner who's participated in it, I'd love to push back as much as I can against that narrative of inevitability. It's not been helpful. I, I have not seen it, and uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if I could. I could deal with watching <laughs> it. Look, one thing I would say is I do think that um, we need we need satire about wars. We need we need ways for the public to understand what happens in war. I think. I think we're in a, in a in a dangerous place in a way as a society because so few Americans actually are participants in anything to do with the military and any other kind of service, diplomacy, aid workers, humanitarian workers. They don't see this stuff close up. I think things that are too gritty and real, you know, maybe don't always serve the same purpose, have the same effect that something like MASH does. So I think it's it's good to see the satire coming up and I and I hope that people gain some understanding of what was what people were trying to do in both Iraq and Afghanistan through some of the creative things that we see but like um, you know nothing was inevitable in in either of these wars and it's very easy to look back with 2020 hindsight and think you know what should we have done certainly it's not inevitable that counterinsurgency um, fails. Counterinsurgency can and has worked. We just saw the confirmation that the FARC in Colombia have turned in what is being certified as, I think, all of their arms. It probably is. And it's a substantial milestone in a country that had a 50-year insurgency. I think uh, it's there is a part of every conflict that is a that is a comedy of errors and, and tragically has an enormous cost in in people's lives. But uh, you know, Paul's right. The Afghan people were certainly not looking to to uh, you know reject foreign help. I think there's a there's still a very great welcoming and gratitude for what the international community has tried to do with and for Afghanistan. But I do think we're at a different point. And I think one of the things we've suffered from is that we've not known you know, wars go through cycles. Who's in the lead changes. At the beginning, it's almost always really a military thing. And it would, you know, ideally it shifts to an integrated political military activity. And it, and, and really, it ultimately normally shifts to something where it's being governed by the local authorities and supported by 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 partners, which is which is what was happening in Colombia. And I think we have a profound difference there. I, I I do not know what kind of consultations are happening with the Afghans on what we are planning to do in their country going forward. But 17 years in, um, however dysfunctional they may be, we're going to need to find a way to make this an Afghan effort to stabilize Afghanistan that is supported by the United States and other parts of the international community rather than an American war effort in Afghanistan. That might sound like semantics, but I think it has some very real implications for how we go forward. Let, let me just jump in and both agree and say I think we've already largely accomplished that. You know, With only 8,000 troops left in Afghanistan, 
it's no longer an, an American-led war. There's what is the number now? 350,000 Afghan security forces. As you pointed out, Vikram, they're the ones doing the fighting and, and the dying. And so I think we've successfully, uh, you know, Afghanized the war, but maybe a little bit too much. They do need continued support, as you, as you noted. The external support will be crucial for keeping the Afghan army in the field. My big concern is that what we've accomplished in 16 years, the net effect of American involvement is to create a strong and effective Afghan army and a weak, incompetent Afghan state. And that's a pretty dangerous combination. And we're uh, leaving behind essentially an Afghan civil war. And I'm concerned about the long-term effect of a strong, professional, respected Afghan army taking orders from a distrusted, incompetent Afghan state. I, I, this is not a recipe for long-term stability uh, in Afghanistan and South Asia. Whitney, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I certainly can't disagree with that. I mean, certainly we have many examples in the region of, of countries where the, the military kind of wrestles uh, a, a weak and ineffective civilian government. So it's not a model that that we should seek to to replicate in Afghanistan. Um, and, and I do think we've leaned in that direction. We've also had really ineffective partners on the civilian side. So I think it's been hard to legitimately kind of bolster that. Um, we're certainly in a better position than we were with Karzai. But um, yeah, a lot more aid and assistance uh, clearly needs to go to the political side. Well, last question, since everyone here seems to agree that we're not going to see any sort of comprehensive strategy or at least a politically led strategy out of the current administration, are we going to be having the same conversation in a year? Will it just sort of be the, the status quo for the next three years? Vikram, any thoughts? So, I mean, I, I, right now I'm not very optimistic. I think there's, I don't think there seems to be a political intention to resource a comprehensive strategy in Afghanistan. I hope I'm wrong. I hope there is a sort of a, a Goldilocks formula. I don't think Paul's uh, vision for time and resources is going to be realized, which might mean that we continue to be in something that's that's a you know suboptimal from what could happen in Afghanistan. But I, I also think you know, you have to look at every moment as a as a as a new day. The fact is the Afghan government has not collapsed. The fact is Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Afghan kids are in schools. The fact is there are, you know, there's communications, there's interaction with their neighborhood in the world. There's, there's been a profound shift. The situation for women in Afghanistan has changed absolutely profoundly since 2001. A lot of good has come to people that have suffered tremendously for many, many decades out of this international investment. So what I would like to see, and maybe it's better without a lot of political attention, what I would hope to see is that the international community basically says, we're going to commit to Afghanistan for a long period of time. It's not a, not in six and 12-month increments. It won't really matter if we're having this conversation in a year because we're going to be committed to Afghanistan for a decade uh, at levels that we can sustain, that are politically sustainable, that focus on helping the Afghan government uh, defeat the Taliban, I think when you go into a war, it's good to talk about uh, trying to win, even if that doesn't that doesn't preclude there being a negotiated settlement. But I think, you know, there has to be I think it's useful to have the intent. But it's it's their war now. In a way, the American people have moved on from this. And it's uh, and it's a it's a it's a part of the world that is still deeply it's deeply in American interest that it not fall back into an uncontested area of safe haven for terrorists, including both ISIS and Al Qaeda, and that the the people have a, a prospect of of a better of a better future. 
So I think some kind of consistent strategy, you know, commitment is necessary. I just I don't see it uh, being the kind of comprehensive approach that that we would all want to see at sort of any level. Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap this up. Thanks for joining us today, and please join us next time on the ER. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.